Well, it's very good to open the scriptures with you this morning. We are in the book of Philippians. Uh, you might want to open to Philippians chapter 3. As you're finding your spot, as I look out on your masked and beautiful faces, I'm reminded that each one of us has our own testimony. Uh, God is doing something unique in each one of our lives. Even while there's much that we share in common, we share the gospel in common, we share Christ in common, we share an inheritance in common. Uh, and yet, at the same time, God is working in and through each of us in unique ways. And so a personal testimony, your personal testimony, is a powerful witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. And I would encourage you to go out into the world and to just share with others what God is doing in your life. What has he done? What is he doing? What will he do? And that's exactly what we see in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is filled with personal testimonies, uh, all coming from Paul. But he gives us the testimony of Christ in Philippians 2, right? Christ, who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held on to. But he humbled himself and he took the form of a slave. He emptied himself. And he humbled himself further, being obedient to, to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Christ's testimony. And then right after that, we, we hear a little bit about Timothy's testimony and how Timothy is modeling his life after the life of Christ. And then we hear Epaphroditus' testimony, at least pieces of it, and how Epaphroditus is living his life as a reflection of the testimony and life of Christ. And then when we get to chapter 3, we see Paul's testimony. And so one way to think about the book of Philippians is Paul is just showing us picture after picture of, of first of all, Christ, and then men who are living in reflection of Christ's testimony. We get to chapter 4, and we're going to see that he's encouraging two women in the Philippian church to conform their lives to the life of Christ. But that's for another sermon later down the road. So personal testimonies are, are powerful in their witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. And they're also extremely instructive. We're, we are told to be like Christ, be like Timothy, be like Epaphroditus, be like Paul. Paul's testimony in chapter 3 is broken into three parts. So we're going to look at the third of three parts, but it's really helpful to get a sense of the structure of the whole chapter. In the first 11 verses, you see Paul's past. Paul says, this is the way I used to be. I used to put all of my confidence in my own flesh. I was a Hebrew of he uh, Hebrews. If anyone had a reason to boast in himself and his own works of achievement for righteousness sake, it was me. And he said, if anyone could be saved by following the works of the law, that's me. But then he goes on, he says, but I came to a point where I, I saw Christ. And then I realized that everything that I thought that I had, everything that I thought that I was contributing to my own righteousness was worth nothing. That's Paul's past testimony. He went from a works-based, legalistic sense of himself to a grace-filled man who understood that his righteousness was not in himself but in Christ. And then we get the middle part, which is Paul's present testimony in verses 12 through 16. And in this verse he says, look, I, I'm hoping for ultimate vindication. I'm hoping for resurrection from the dead. I, I am looking forward to perfection, but I haven't attained it yet. That's not mine yet. That's not my experience. 
And we just hear echoes of Romans 7, right? When I want to do good, there's evil right there. Then it's the evil that I do. The evil that I hate is the evil that I do. And, and so I want to do what is right, but I find that I'm not doing it. Paul says, I, I haven't attained this perfection. I haven't been raised up in glory yet. But he says, and this is part of his present testimony, I press on toward the goal. I, I'm working it out. With fear and trembling, to, to use words from chapter 1. And so in, in Paul's present testimony, he says, look, as a grace-filled man, I'm not trying to earn anything by the way I live my life, but I'm trying to respond to what God has done for me in Christ. I, I'm trying to live a life that reflects the life of Christ. Not because that's going to add to my righteousness, but because it's my desire, it's my heart's desire. To press on toward the goal. That I may attain the, the upward call of Christ. Jody has asked us to save him those verses for his first sermon. When he joins us in October. And so I'm going to pick up the third part of Paul's testimony. Which is the future testimony. Paul says, I have a future testimony. Things that have not yet been realized in my life. And this is where it's really fascinating for us to consider. We all have different particular testimony, especially past and present, all informed by the same gospel, the same Lord, the same Savior. But all of us very much share the same future testimony. Paul's future testimony is our future testimony as well. And it's this future testimony that has power in our witness as we go forward and we say, this is a testimony that you too can have if you make Christ your Lord and Savior. So let's read this future testimony, which is Paul's, but also ours if we are in Christ. Uh, in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 17 through to the end of the chapter. Would you find your place, and as you are, please stand. This is the word of God. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. But... Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of God, Paul's future testimony, and our future testimony as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have shown us what we have to hope for. Uh, you have given us something to look forward in. Uh, you have promised us great glory in, in the days to come and in the age to come. Oh God, I pray that you'd help us to believe it. And believing it, I pray that it would transform the way we live our lives so that we're not trying to attain anything, but we truly live life backwards, knowing where we're going, know what hope is secure, so that that would impact the way we live our lives in the present. God, help me to preach. I pray that you would help the church to receive the preaching of your word. Glorify yourself and build us up in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated.
I don't know if you noticed, but there's more than just Paul's future testimony in these verses. Uh, we, we also get a, a contrast between Paul and the false teachers. And as Paul talks about these false teachers, he gives their future testimony as well. And so this is very much an us versus them kind of passage. Be like us, don't be like them. Because this is our future and it is so much better than their future. So notice that there is a future sense to both. We see in, um, in verse 20, partway through to the end of the, the chapter, what our future testimony is. We are waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's still future. We're waiting for something. And, and that something is, is someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's our future testimony. Now compare that with the future testimony of the false teachers, which you have in um, verse 19, the first part. Their end is destruction. So that's, that's our choices here. Follow after Paul and, and receive the glorification of your body, or follow the false teachers and be destroyed. So two future, two paths with, with two goals, two ends, two futures. Which future do you want, glorification or destruction? And obviously what Paul's trying to do in this chapter, he's putting himself forward as an example to say, follow me and, and reap what I reap. Have what I have. So we, we do have then in this in the structure of the verses we're looking at, in us versus them, us verses 20 and 21, and 17, and them verses 18 and 19. Now, let's take a look at both groups. We're going to start by looking at them. What do, we, what do we know about them, the them being the false teachers, verses 18 and 19? Let's read this again, and then we'll break it down. Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ... Their end is destruction, we've talked about that. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So that's what we know about them. At the very beginning here in verse 18, we're told that Paul has often told the Philippians about these false teachers. So we know that Paul, when he was present in Philippi, he warned the Philippians, don't buy this false gospel, don't follow this false teaching. And then in this um, chapter even, if you go up to verses 2 and 3, he introduces this group again. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil doers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So there's a group within Philippi who, who's trying to lead the church down the wrong path. And he says, uh, I've told you about them and I'm telling you about them again even with tears. When he was present with them, he warned them. And now that he's writing them this letter, you can picture Paul probably dictating this letter to someone else who wrote it down. And as he gets to chapter 3, and he's reflecting on his life as an example for the Philippians. And, and he's mindful of a situation in Philippi. He begins to cry. And he's very stern with them. We were going to find out that he, he, he's very clear about if you follow the false teachers, it's not a good path and the end isn't good. Uh, but he, he's crying for them because he's filled with love for them. What do we learn about these false teachers? Well, in verses 18 and 19, we learn five things. Number one, we find out that they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Number two, verse 19, their end is destruction. Number three, their God is their belly. Number four, they glory in their shame. And number five, they set their minds on earthly things. So this is the testimony of the false teachers. Paul is, is saying this is their life and this is where they're going. Their end is destruction. So let's just unpack each of those five things for a minute. And, and what we're doing by this is, is we're trying to figure out what are the pitfalls of the Christian life. Because these false teachers are appealing to Christians and they're winning Christians. What are the pitfalls that we want to avoid in our own personal testimonies? So that when we go out of the world and say, look, this is my life. This is what God has done for me through Christ. This is what he is doing for me. And this is where we are going. This is my future testimony. We avoid these pitfalls, these snares, so that our end is not destruction. So we begin with, they are enemies of the cross of Christ what does it mean when Paul says they are enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, very generically, it just means that they oppose the gospel. They, they oppose the right teaching about who Jesus is and what Christ accomplished on the cross. Now, we can drill down a little bit deeper, though, and we recognize, well, what was accomplished exactly on the cross? If they are enemies of the cross, then they are, they are teaching something that is antithetical to what we teach about the cross. What do we teach about the cross? We teach that we are saved by what Jesus did in our place on the cross. Right? Our gospel is a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of substitution where Jesus takes our place. He, he takes our sins into his body and he nails our sins in his body to the cross. And the wrath that we deserve for our sins falls on him in our place. And then he dies and he carries in our body, in his body, our sins. And he deposits his body in the ground and our sins in his body in the ground. And then on the third day, he rises from the dead, but our sins stay buried. That's what we teach. We teach a gospel of grace. And, and, and Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. So the enemies of the cross of Christ say, it is not finished. Uh, if you're an enemy of the, of the cross of Christ, as these false teachers were, you, you would say, Jesus isn't sufficient. What Jesus did on the cross isn't enough. Uh, we have to add to that. Yeah, Jesus did a lot. He, he got the ball rolling for us, but now we need to add to that through our own works. What we do or what we restrain ourselves from doing, that's a false gospel. And so the, to be an enemy of the cross of Christ is to reject the gospel of grace. These false teachers are rejecting salvation by grace and they are, they are requiring an additional work added to the grace of God through Christ. They're saying, yes, it's Jesus plus circumcision. It, it, you, you are saved by Jesus, but you have to be circumcised as well. We see that up in verse 2. That's what Paul means by mutilation of the flesh. And if circumcision, then you need to follow these food laws. You, you, you need to uh, live a certain way, doing certain things. Paul says, no. These false teachers are selling you a false gospel. 
you cannot be more loved than you are loved right now if you're in Christ. If you believe in the finished work of Christ, God can't love you any more than he already loves you. You can't add to it by what you do or by what you don't do. The enemies of the cross of Christ will say, well, God can cease from loving you because of the things that you do or don't do. Paul says, no, that's false. That's a false gospel. I want to warn you about this false gospel even with my tears. Second thing that we see is their end is destruction. If you buy into a false gospel saying that the gospel is the grace of God plus your works, you will not be saved. You will not go to heaven. You will not be raised from the dead unto eternal life. Anyone who says that you have to add to what Christ has done is a false teacher. And we learned about this, right, in the book of Romans. No one is justified before God by fulfilling the works of the law. What does that mean? Well, it means that our righteousness, to be justified, is to be considered righteous, to be righteous in the, in the courtroom of heaven. To be righteous before God, no one actually is able to live that life. So if you're hoping in your own works or your own good deeds or, or your restraining of sin and you stand before God and you say, look at my life, you will be sadly disappointed and your end will be the same end as the end of the false teachers. Your end will be destruction. And people who reject the gospel entirely of grace will be destroyed. What does it mean that they'll be destroyed? They don't pass out of existence. We don't believe in annihilation. The Bible doesn't teach that. Every human being will exist forever. But if you reject the grace of Christ, if you reject the gospel that says that Jesus did all of the work on our behalf, then your end is destruction, and this is what that means. You will stand before Jesus face to face, and he will say, away from me, I never knew you. And you might say, well, well, hold on a minute. I went to church. I sang worship songs. I, I preached in your pulpit. I cast out demons in your name. I did great miracles. I, I went to the other side of the earth. I, I was careful about what my eyes saw and what my ears heard. And Jesus would say, but, but you were counting on those things as the grounds of your righteousness. And therefore, you don't know me. And since you don't know me and you don't know my gospel, I don't know you. And I don't recognize you. And I don't see your name in my book of life. So depart from me and they'll go to the outer darkness. And in that outer darkness, that place where, where God's loving presence is not felt, they will weep and they will gnash their teeth. They, they will weep for themselves. They'll feel sorry for themselves. They say, we live this life hoping and thinking that we're going to live with Jesus forever. And they will be filled with pity because they know what they've lost. But then they will gnash their teeth, which means they will raise their fists and they won't blame themselves for misunderstanding the gospel. They will blame God. That they will gnash their teeth at God. They'll say, it's your fault. You are the unjust one. You are the unfair one. You are the one that has not looked on my life favorably. And they'll never blame themselves. And in that outer darkness where they're weeping and gnashing their teeth, the worm will never die. It's a picture of worms that are 
feeding on the corpse of a dead person, but there's always more to feed on. They will go on living forever and ever, and their environment will be the unquenchable fire. I, I fill this in because I want us to see how serious it is. When Paul says their end is destruction, this is what he means. And all of those images that I've brought to mind this morning are from the tongue of Christ himself in the Gospels. What else do we know about these false teachers who proclaim and adhere to a false gospel? Thirdly, we find out that their God is their belly. This verse gets misused all the time, I believe, uh, by well-meaning Christians. And, and I myself, like, when you just read it, it, it sounds like they're gluttons, right? They, they, they just want to eat things and drink things. They, they want to uh, fill themselves and their bellies with pleasurable appetites and, and things to eat. But that's not what it means in context. This is not a reference to gluttony, consuming things for their own pleasure, this is actually a reference to strict kosher laws as the grounds of salvation, meaning we cannot eat certain things if we're going to be saved. And so their God, they, they want to be obedient to their God, and their God is not God in heaven. Their God is their belly, saying we must refrain from filling our belly with the things that we're told we're not to eat. And they think that they're being obedient, that they're earning some merit for themselves by what they restrain themselves from consuming, whether food or drink. They say, what did Jesus say about this? What goes into your stomach is nothing. Whatever goes into your mouth and down into your stomach cannot make you unclean because it'll just go out of your body and into the street or into the sewer for us. So that, that doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out from the heart. That's what makes you unclean. So these people have misunderstood the purpose of the food laws. The food laws were set up by God to teach us about the categories of clean and unclean. And, and this idea that, that you are either unclean or clean or, or holy. And the whole point that Jesus comes and says those food laws were just object lessons to teach you about the categories. But now we know more. And now we know that you are unclean unless you've been made obedient from the heart. Unless you've given your sin to Christ then you are unclean. You need to be sanctified and made holy by grace through faith. Not by what you eat, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for these false teachers, we could extrapolate from what they, what they didn't eat, we could add to that all other kinds of things that you don't do. So as, as Christians, what don't you do? Hoping that that will add some righteousness to your account in heaven. Yeah, Jesus did most of the work, but I'm just going to top it up by not doing certain things. So for us, we're probably not too concerned about not eating certain things as grounds of salvation. But what do we not do so that we might be a little extra righteous before God? The third thing. They glory, or sorry, the fourth thing, they glory, these false teachers glory in their shame. What is their shame? Well, from chapter 3, we know the shame is at least tied to two things. Circumcision in verse 2, they mutilate the flesh. They, they, they believe that by circumcising themselves in the flesh that they have some grounds to glory and to boast that they are righteous before God because of something that they've done to their bodies. 
The second thing, what we've already just talked about, was that their God is their belly. That by restraining from eating certain things, that they've attained some righteousness from themselves. And what Paul says is, they are boasting in something that is of no profit to them. They, they think that there is some glory for themselves because they have circumcised themselves and refrained themselves from eating, eating certain things. And he says, when they glory in the works that they are doing, they should be ashamed of themselves. Because that's not how you're saved. You're not saved by circumcision and food laws. So with the food laws, they felt that they ain't earned righteousness by what they didn't do. With circumcision, they thought that they gained extra righteousness by what they did. Notice how slippery the path can be into this false gospel. How many of us wrestle with that by not doing things or by doing things? You have a ditch on both sides. I'm not going to do this sin or I'm going to do this righteous act. And there's nothing wrong with restraining yourself from sin and doing good. In fact... Paul and the scriptures exhort us to that all of the time. The problem with the false teachers and the false gospel is they, they said that by not doing this sin and by doing this righteous act, they had earned or maintained righteousness for themselves. And that's where they failed. That's where they're leading astray. Obviously, the gospel is not against doing right. And refraining from doing good. But what's the motivation? Is it to justify yourself? Or is it to work out the salvation freely given by grace through faith with fear and trembling? Is it pressing on toward the goal? Is it tapping into a true desire to do what is right? And it motivation, therefore, really matters. They gloried in the wrong thing. Their motivation was to attain something for themselves apart from the finished work of Christ. So fifth, we t- we're told they set their minds on earthly things. This is, again, often misunderstood. This is not about materialism, although the materialism uh, of our world is clearly a sin in the Bible. We're told not to be worldly, not to put our hope in, in riches in this world, but to store up riches in heaven. We're not to accumulate stuff for the sake of accumulating stuff. Paul has said, uh, we are born into the world with nothing, we'll depart with nothing. If we have food and clothing in between, we'll be content with this. So clearly the Bible is against materialism and worldliness, but that's not what this verse means. To set your mind on earthly things is to try to gain or attain righteousness and salvation by what you do on earth. It's just a restatement of what we've already talked about. They, they think that by what they do on earth and what they don't do on earth, that changes their status in heaven. So they're focused on their behavior on earth. And what we're going to see when we transition to looking at us, they should be looking to their status in heaven as freely bestowed. They set their mind on earthly things as far as with regard to attaining righteousness and maintaining it. They try to save themselves by what they do and by what they don't do here on earth. But we know that actually the gospel is not about what we do or don't do. It's what Christ does and hasn't done on our behalf. So don't be like them. 
Paul, Paul has put them forward as the, the, the example of what not to be. You know, we will all one day come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reading the book, Living Life Backward. If you haven't started to read that book, I highly recommend it. Because if you live your life knowing that, the, that at the end of your life, you will be face to face with Jesus, for good or for ill, either you'll be, uh, belong to him or you won't. But every human being that has ever lived has a date with Jesus. We, we have a, a meeting that is set in stone that you cannot be late for and you cannot miss. God will make sure that you are there at your appointed time. And you will stand before the judge of the earth. And what will you say to him in that moment? Will you boast to the Lord Jesus Christ about all that you did not do on earth? Will you say to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, look at my life. Look at what I did not eat. Look at what I did not drink. Look at what I did not smoke. Look at what I did not watch. Behold what I did not listen to. Look at what I did not say. Notice the things that I did not purchase. If your life is just the sum total of all the things that you have not done, what boasting do we have before Christ in that? Especially if you follow it up say, and I wanted to. Look at the restraint that I showed. I wanted all of those things. I wanted to indulge in all of those things, but I didn't. And he'll look at you and say, well, why not? Because I knew I had this meeting with you and I wanted to be righteous before you. That's when he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Is our salvation based on what we refrain from doing? Is that the Christian life? If you go onto social media today or you just watch the headlines, there are a good many Christians being very public about what they think their faith is all about, and it's all about what they don't do. That's a shallow, false gospel that leads to destruction. The gospel's not about what we're not allowed to do. It's not about restraining ourselves from the sin that we deep down want to have. Or will you stand before Jesus and boast in what you did? See, I told you there's a ditch on both sides. Will you stand before Jesus and say, look, I know my Bible frontwards and back. You know how many hours I, I spent reading my Bible. Uh, uh, will you stand before him and say, everyone in my church knew that I was the prayer warrior of the church. I was the one that prayed. Will you stand before the Lord Jesus and say, I had flawless attendance at church. I went to every uh, Bible study. I was never late. I always stayed last. Maybe you'll even say, I fasted and I never even told anybody that I fasted. I'm pretty sure I'm the only Christian in North America that fasted. Look at me. Will you say, look at all of my good deeds before men. Do you know how many times I visited the elderly in, a, in, in an old age home or in the hospital? I went to the prisons. I worked at the food banks. 
What I'm not saying is that it's wrong to do any of these things. There's other sermons and other texts in the Bible that will exhort you to this. What's the problem with these things, though? It's if these are our grounds for boasting before the Lord. If we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and direct his gaze at us, that's the problem. If we think that those things are attaining any righteousness for ourselves, that's the problem. Will you set your mind on your earthly life? Will you be the reference point of your own salvation? That's the point. Will you stand before Jesus and say, look at me in my life. Judge me based on my life, what I didn't do and what I did. If that's your gospel, then your end is destruction. The alternative is when you stand before Christ to say, I, I'm poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer you for my righteousness. And you're not the reference point for your righteousness. You point it back to Christ and say, you, Lord Jesus, are my righteousness. You lived the life that I couldn't live. You did the work that I was unable to do. And my righteousness is nothing unless I am in you. And that's the true gospel. What I want to just pause and point out is, how easy it is to fall into the false gospel. It's so easy. And I feel sometimes that the danger is greater for mature, so-called mature Christians. Because when you're just first a Christian, the good news of righteousness apart from yourself is, is bright and brilliant and right in the foreground. But then you go to church for a while. And you hang around Christians for a while. And all of a sudden you begin to forget that your righteousness is entirely purchased by Jesus on the cross. And you begin to add just small things, very subtly, weaving a small but deadly strand of legalism into your gospel. And then you begin to live it. And then you begin to model it. And then you begin to teach it. And then you begin to proclaim it. And then that's your witness. And you begin to shout at un, unsaved people for their sin. As if it's their sin and not the righteousness of Christ that's going to make the difference in their eternal future. And we spend all of our time shouting and yelling and hating the world. Rather than being ministers of reconciliation and going and saying, look, we have a good gospel from a good God and the work is finished on the cross. So don't be like them, Paul says. Be like us. And the us in this letter is Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, pressing on toward the goal so that their lives would reflect the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as they respond and root themselves in him. Verse 17 Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Don't be like the false teachers. Their end is destruction. Imitate me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, ultimately Christ. Well, let me ask you, could you stand up in the company of this church and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Imitate me as I follow after Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what, what would we be imitating if you did say that? 
We'd be imitating your confidence that Christ finished the work on your behalf. That your righteousness is in Christ and not in you. We'd be imitating you as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not to attain righteousness, but to chase after Christ with all of your heart and with all of your desire. Because that's what you want. Not because that's what you're supposed to do. To press on toward the goal. Knowing that much of the gospel is yet to come to you. That's what we would be imitating. And I would commend the elders of this church to your imitation. I see in the elders of this church a real effort to live out the gospel of grace. Each in their own way with their families. To to stay rooted in the grace of Christ and to work out their lives. To live maximally for Christ. To press on toward the goal. So look to your elders at this church and imitate them as they imitate Christ. Paul then goes in, in verse 20 through 21, he says there's another way. You don't have to follow these false teachers. Imitate us. And this is what that looks like in verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we are waiting for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Follow after us as we follow after the one who who holds the universe in his hand and keeps everything created in, in subjection to him by the power of his own word. What do we learn about us? There's three things. This will conclude our time. Number one, our citizenship is in heaven. Number two, we are waiting for a savior to come from heaven. And number three... When Jesus comes as our Savior, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Let's take a look at these three in greater depth. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is the the anecdote or the, the antithesis, the exact opposite to setting your mind on earthly things. You are either looking to yourself on this earth to attain righteousness or you recognize that your righteousness is firmly established and secure in heaven. Why? Because Jesus, your Savior, is in heaven. And so you don't look to yourself on earth, setting your mind on earthly things, as the false teachers and the false gospel. You set your gaze to Christ who is in heaven, and you see that because you are in him, you are abiding in him, your citizenship is where he is, and he is in heaven. And it's secure for you because he's already accomplished it. Your name is already there. If you travel abroad, let's say you're, you're, you're in Florida, or you're in the Mediterranean Ocean, or you're in China, or you're in Africa, you don't worry about your lapsing Canadian citizenship because you know your citizenship is secure. You've got your passport. You know you can return at any time. It's not about what you do while you're away. I mean, I guess if you break the laws, that's a problem. But you know that your citizenship is secure. So, so it is true with us that our citizenship in heaven is already a done deal. Your name is already written in the, in the list of citizens. And it will not be expunged. So set your gaze there for your confidence and not on your life on this earth. We are not, our citizenship is not dependent upon what we do and what we don't do on earth. It is secured by what Jesus did and didn't do. And when he ascended to heaven, we ascended with him. 
at least in position and in citizenship, and we will go to him when he raises us from the dead. Therefore, we need not be preoccupied with earning or maintaining our place in the age to come. It's secure. Secondly, then, as we look to him in heaven, we are waiting for him to return and to bring with him our citizenship. We are waiting for him to come for us from heaven. And therefore, our reference point is the descent of our Savior who brings with him our righteousness. That's key. We are not going to bring our righteousness to him. We are waiting for him to bring our righteousness to us in an ultimate sense. Therefore... Our reference point for our right standing with God is not ourselves, but Jesus. And as we're waiting for our Savior to come, we remember that we need a Savior. We are poor in spirit. A works-based gospel that is being pushed by false teachers and subtly uh, braids itself into our lives through, through false legalism has no room for a savior because a works-based gospel doesn't need a savior. A works-based gospel says you must attain righteousness for yourself. There's no savior in that. So the very fact that we're waiting for our savior to come is a recognition that our righteousness is not in ourselves in our in our own actions. Thirdly, when our Savior comes with our citizenship from heaven and he brings with him our righteousness, our bodies will be transformed to be glorious. When we try to earn or maintain our righteousness, our right standing before God, the only thing we gain for ourselves is destruction. But when we put our faith in our Savior, who holds our citizenship and our righteousness in his hand, when we, we wait for him to come for us, then our end is super physical glorification. I have preached this so many times from this pulpit, I'm going to preach it again. That, that our, the hope of the gospel is super physical glorification, that, that we will be made physical, but not just physical, super physical, that, that we will be more substantial than we've ever been to this point in our lives, and we will be made glorious in a, in a way that I can't even describe for you at this point. And, and what Paul says here is that we are waiting for our lowly bodies to be made glorious. Let's talk a moment about our lowly bodies. Anyone here struggle with body image? My body's just not what I want it to be. And it might be something about your body that you don't like. Maybe it's totally cosmetic. I don't look the way that I want to look. There's, there's some aspect or some feature in my body that I don't like. Or maybe I'm not in the shape that I wanted to be in. I, I, I'm struggling with, with, with my own body and how I look and how I feel. Well, of course. Because we're in lowly bodies. And this desire for a glorious body, it's not a bad thing, but trying to attain a glorious body in a sin-death environment is an impossible task. Anyone struggling with pain? Aging? It's just a fact that because of sin, as we age... 
we grow weary and tired and our bodies break down because we have lowly bodies. Anyone struggling with disease? Could be the coronavirus is one example. Alzheimer's, cancer, common flu, heart disease, Crohn's disease. Fill in the blank. Yes, we have lowly bodies prone to disease. Anyone struggling with developmental delay or know someone who does? Their mind isn't working at full capacity? Or physical deformity? Or disability that is either uh, genetic or because of a, an accident? We have lowly bodies, perishable bodies, mortal bodies, weak bodies. And our, our culture says, well, we need to make our bodies glorious. And, and we have all this focus on, on, on diet and exercise and, and sometimes plastic surgery and all kinds of things to try and make your body glorious. Now, it's not wrong to try to take care of your body. Paul says in 1 Timothy that um, uh, bodily training is of some good. It, it's useful to a point, but nothing compared to, to training for godliness. And when our focus becomes so absorbed in our physical bodies, we've missed the mark because we've forgotten that we have a lowly body. But the solution is not to try to attain glorious bodies in the here and now. It's to recognize that we're going to have a lowly body and it's going to get worse until the Lord comes. The solution is not escaping our bodies like Gnostics would teach. You just need to be this disembodied spirit floating in an ethereal nether world where you don't think or move or do anything. That's not the hope of the gospel. The, yes, these bodies are difficult to live in, but the, the, the goal of the gospel is not to escape them. Neither is the goal of the gospel to be um, relieved or, or from them uh, totally, to, to be annihilated, to go out of existence, which is the hope of the atheists, to just not exist. The goal of the gospel is transformation. The goal of the, the gospel, and this is the promise of the gospel, is that these lowly bodies, which are causing us so much trouble in the here and now, will be made glorious. I want to read just one other passage from 1 John. What does it mean that they'll be made glorious? 1 John 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That is, what is this glorious body? What are we going to be? We have the position of, of God's children now. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. That's true now. But there's something about us that has not yet appeared. What we're going to be in all of our fullness has not yet been made real to us. But we know that when he appears, that is when Jesus Christ, our Savior, comes down from heaven with our citizenship and our righteousness in, our, in his hands to transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 
I, I don't know what this glorious body is going to be like in total, but I do know this much. It will be exactly like Christ's glorious body right now. And we know something of what his body is like. When he was raised from the dead, he still had the holes in his hands and his feet and in his side from when he was crucified. So the body that is going to be glorified will have some connection, some continuity with the bodies that we're in now. But all the perishability and the lowliness and the mortality will be swallowed up by imperishability and glory. We know that Jesus was able to speak and to eat. We'll be able to eat as well. So there's a physicality to it. But more than that, we don't know. Daniel says that we will shine like the stars. That, that Peter says that that we will be partakers of the divine nature and the very stuff of God will be given to us. We don't become God. We don't become gods, but we will be made in his likeness, in the likeness of Christ. So great will it be. I'm convinced that the future testimony then that we have in common with Paul is the fountainhead of all Christian living and Christian witness. That is that if you want to live a Christian life and you want to have an effective witness for, for the gospel, remember your future testimony. Remember where we're going. Christian living. You want to live a powerful Christian life? Remember that you're going to be raised from the dead. Remember that our citizenship is firmly established in heaven. Your name is already written down if you're in Christ. And it is not dependent on what we do or don't do on the face of the earth. It's a gift given to us by grace through faith. Therefore, and this is the important part, we are freed from our works-based legalism. If our righteousness is connected and, and entirely dependent upon Jesus Christ and not on ourselves then we don't have to try to work out our salvation in the sense of attaining righteousness. Our righteousness has already been attained for us. Secondly, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. That's a promise. Therefore, we are freed from the fear of death. What would your life look like if you never feared death? What risks would you take? What risks could you take for God if you knew that if you died, you'd be raised unto glory? Would your life look different? Not only are we freed from the fear of death, but we're freed from all forms of bodily obsession. Would that not be great? How much time do you give to thinking about your body? How much time do you, do you invest in, in what you look like And, and how you feel. Now listen, physical training is of some worth. But when it tips into the point of obsession, it becomes unhealthy for us in a spiritual sense. And imagine if you took all of your bodily obsession, all the times that you're like not comfortable in your own skin. And you said, well, of course, I'm in a lowly body. What do I expect? 
And what if you took all of the time and all of the energy and all of the heartache and all of the effort that you're investing in your body, uh, in the way you look and the clothes that you wear and in your workout routines and your diets and all of the things that, that we do for our bodies. And what if you took all of that time and energy and heartache and you invested it in living for Christ? Knowing that you're going to have a glorious body one day. And any gain toward any kind of body that you want today is so fleeting and it will all ultimately give way to the corruption of aging and death. Now these two thoughts together, that we're freed from works-based legalism and that we're freed from the fear of death and bodily obsession, when you put those together, these two thoughts transform our religion from what are we permitted to do and not permitted to do and in place of that, what shall we do? What could we do for God in his glory? Because it's all taken care of. And we can focus on Christ and his gospel. Lastly, when we think about our future testimony, it radically changes our witness. The ultimate promise of the gospel, the ultimate promise is not to feel better about yourself through the avenue of forgiveness. Now, the gospel is forgiveness from sins. Uh, the, the gospel is the removal of guilt and shame. So I'm not, I'm not arguing to remove forgiveness and, and the removal of guilt and shame in the sense that we ought to feel better about ourselves. That's a part of the gospel. So what I'm about to say doesn't say forget that and trade that for this. But... That's not the end. That's not the extent of the gospel. The goal, the extent, the fullness of the gospel is the promise that God will triumph over death. That's the gospel. Because that's the problem that we all face, ultimately, is death. And, and the gospel says, no, death does not win. No, death does not get the last word. The, the gospel says that God considers death to be his enemy. God hates aging and, and decay and disease. If you're struggling with your body and it's breaking down, God, God considers that reality to be his enemy. And God considers death to be his enemy. And God hates death. And God will put death to death and bring victory for us in and over death so that death does not get the last word. That's the gospel. And, and that's what the world needs to hear. And I am convinced that the church needs to go out with more than just the promise of forgiveness. Now notice I said more. I'm not saying to stop talking about forgiveness. But, but the world does not care about forgiveness in a God they don't love. Uh, the world does not need to be forgiven uh, from a God that they don't care about. Now, you can help them to see that they do need that, but, but the world can reject that out of hand. But what every person in the world wants is victory over death. And even those who say they don't, deep down they do. Nobody wants to die and stay dead. And so we go out of the world and say, I want to tell you about my God who has triumphed over death who will raise your lowly body and make it glorious to live forever. I am convinced that we need to go out with the good news of immortality and victory over death by physical resurrection of our bodies unto eternal life. 
And for some reason, in Canada and the West, the, the resurrection has become sort of something that you learn when you're in church, when, you, when you're more mature in the faith. But that's what we need to lead with. I have news about resurrection and eternal life in your body. We lead with that. And then once they see that, then we say, but to have that, you need to be forgiven because you've sinned against God, and that's why you die. So Paul's testimony is so helpful for us. It's instructive. It's a great example for how we ought to bear witness to the gospel. But it's also a guide for us on how to live. In, in chapter 3, Philippians 3, 1 to 11, Paul talks about his past. And he, he says, I had confidence in my flesh. But at that point, I was living a works-based religion. And I realized that it was all for nothing. In the present, Paul says he is pressing on toward the goal, meaning he is living maximally for Christ. Even though his righteousness is not attained by him, because God has gifted righteousness to him, he wants to live maximally for him. But he doesn't stop there. His testimony ends with verses 12 through 17. My lowly body will be transformed, raised from the dead and made glorious. Now I will live forever. Victory over death is the message that the world needs to hear from us. As my departure draws near, as your pastor, I have five sermons left. I will be preaching through September in the first week of October. But as my departure draws near, I have preached resurrection, bodily resurrection to you for four years. Works its way into almost every sermon. And I plead with you always to maintain a strong focus on bodily resurrection from the dead. Because that is the hope of the gospel and that is the promise of glory. And I believe that's the message that the world needs to hear from the church. So make sure Jody preaches bodily resurrection from the dead. Ask him for it. If you haven't heard it in a few weeks, ask him to preach bodily resurrection from the dead. Remind yourselves of it. Fuel your lives on it and hope in it. For these lowly bodies will be raised in glory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to preach resurrection. That's the hope of the gospel. May we be a people of resurrection waiting for our Savior from heaven. For that moment when he comes with our citizenship and our righteousness to transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. What a gospel. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.